please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And if you're able to this morning, if you'd uh, stand with me in honor of, of God as we read his word together. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. We began looking at that uh, last week, and we're going to, Lord willing, uh, finish it up here this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You may be seated. May God encourage you, strengthen you through his word. Let's pray. Father, we continue to beseech your grace this morning. Your wrath was satisfied only by Jesus Christ. Being here this morning is an act of grace on your part. The ability to learn, to see the world around us is an act of your grace. Every word on the page of Scripture is a manifestation of your grace. Apart from your word, we would not know how to know you in our sins. So thank you, Father. Speak to us through your word this morning. Change us. Enlighten us. Grow us. We pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, we began to talk about incompatible loves. Loves that, that cannot exist in the same human heart. The cardinal fan cannot simultaneously be passionate about the cubs. The cub, who's a passionate, fervent cub fan does not love the cardinals. Those, those loves don't exist in the same human heart. I've never encountered a person who, who's told me that they just really love both the Democrats and the Republicans. I've encountered plenty of people who tell me they dislike both parties with a fervency and a passion, but, but I've never encountered a person who says, you know what, Daniel, I just, man, I, I love Republicans and Democrats, both. I'm just so passionate about both parties. Those loves don't coexist in the same human heart. Politics is a zero-sum game. Those, those loves are incompatible. We talked last week about how that relates to love of God. Love of God and, and love of the world are two incompatible loves. A person cannot passionately, fervently, completely love God and at the same time look at the things of the world and say, I love those too. Ultimately, those loves are incompatible. Ultimately. And my goal last week was to kind of put that idea out there and, and, and cause you to, to look at the, the love of God and say, okay, here's love of God and here's Here's the things of the world, and I understand that I need to choose one of those two. 
there's a story that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks that's, that's in Scripture, and it's about a guy named Demas. And, and Demas doesn't appear a lot in Scripture. I think he just appears three times. And he's not mentioned in any great detail, but the times that he's mentioned tell us a lot about him, about ultimately about him. I think the first time that he's mentioned are, is around 60 AD. Paul is in prison in his first imprisonment, and uh, he's writing to Philemon, and he, he writes in the book of Colossians, and he, and he mentions Demas. He says, Demas greets you in both of those letters. Demas says hi. Then about eight years go by, and Paul is in his, his second major imprisonment, and there in Second Timothy, he's at the end of his life. In Second Timothy chapter 4, Demas is mentioned again, but, but this time in a much different light. Again, it's a, it's a quick reference, but it speaks volumes. Paul says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He's gone. We don't know exactly what happened in Demas's life in those intervening eight years, but, it, but at some point, maybe it's Demas was with Paul, and he thought, okay, I'm, I'm with Paul now here in 60 AD in prison, but, but I know things are going to turn around, and, and uh, this is kind of unpleasant, but, but maybe it'll be over soon, and, and then uh, it, it's over, he gets out, and so there's a sense of relief, and, and then things get hard again, and Demas is like, man, this is not working out the way that I thought it would. And he thinks about a, a second imprisonment and ministering to Paul while Paul's in prison. And, and he realizes, look, I, I'm, I'm missing out on life. There are so many things about, about life that I want and I desire to, to have and to do. And, and I can't do that if I'm with Paul. I, I'm out of here. And Paul writes some, those, those words. And I would, I would argue some of the most tragic words in all of Scripture. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He's gone. Ultimately, love of God and love of the world can't exist in the same human heart. And again, my, my goal is just, just as I set these things up before you this, this last week and this morning, what, what I want to do is to say, okay, here's the love of God. Here's the love of God and, and, a, and a passion and a, and a fervency for God, loving him with your whole body and mind and soul and strength. Here, here's love of God. And then I want to set up the toys of this world, kind of the trinkets. And, and I want you to say, okay, there's this toy, and I, I can choose between the toy and God, and I'm going to choose God. So here's the, the toy of the desires of the flesh. Um, I'm going to choose God. Here's a, a little trinket that's the the, the prestige of the world. And, and if I have to choose between the two, I'm going to choose God. And here's the, the, the toy of material possessions and all that that entails. And if it, if it comes between loving those things or loving God, I'm going to love God over and over and over again as we set up the different things in this world that are, that are the things of this world that our hearts can be set on. I want you to over and over again say, not that, this, God, he's worth it. That's what I want us to do together as we go through these verses as a church. Let me remind you, and kind of look at the text with me if you would. Let me remind you what we saw in verse 15. 
in verse 15, we looked at a command, and then the last part of 15 says, here's kind of the theology behind the command. Verse 15, John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the command. You say, well, that, that command seems a little bit contradictory because God loves the world, and we're called to love the people in the world, so, so what does this mean? We said, well, first of all, the world here doesn't mean all just the individual people who are in the world. The world here refers to this, this worldly system that is set in opposition to God. The world is this, this system that has set itself up in opposition to God and the things of God, and, and that's what we're not to love. And we looked at the word love, and so okay, what does the word love mean? The word love there describes someone cherishing or valuing something. And what John is telling us is, look, you cannot love and cherish God, value him, and at the same time love this system that's set in opposition to him. So the command is don't love the world or the things of the world. And he says, look, the reason for that, the theology behind that command, the explanation behind that command is the last part of verse 15 where he says, look, if anyone loves the world or the things in the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. Remember, 1 John is all about fellowship and how you can know that you're in fellowship with God. And the person who's in fellowship with God, their heart has been transformed by the gospel. They've recognized the value of Jesus Christ and placed their trust in him alone, the pearl of great price, the, the, the treasure hidden in a field. And they've said, okay, I recognize the value of Christ. My heart is transformed by the gospel. And now God indwells me. He lives there. He's, he's, he's ever present. And whenever I feel a pull for the things of the world and I follow after the things of the world, there will be a, a sense of dissatisfaction with those things. And John says, look, if there's not, if you believe that you love the things of the world and God, you're, you're kidding yourself. Because if you love the things of the world, the love of the Father isn't there. It's not in you. Then we look at verse 16, or we started to look at verse 16. So the command is don't love the world. The reason behind that is, look, if you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. And then he says, let, let me kind of describe what's in the world. And he describes what's in the world, and, and he takes us through here in verse 16, and he, and he talks about different elements of, of the world, what's in the world. And as we looked at these elements of what's in the world, we said, okay, now we kind of understand what it means to love the world. If these are the things in the world Here's what it means to love the world. The first thing we looked at last week is that loving the world, loving the world means that I am unwilling to resist my physical desires. Loving the world means you are unwilling to resist your physical desires. John says here something about the desires of the flesh, and that desires of the flesh means there, there are things that the, the body desires that are in opposition to the things that God would have us desire and do, and whether it be uh, sexual morality, whether it be gluttony, whether it be uh, legalistic um, abstention, kind of asceticism for the sake of, of legalism, all these things that are, that are flesh desires. He says, look, that's not of God. That's the things of the world. We talked about this a lot last week, and I, I would just suggest this. If you find yourself in a religious system 
that is not at odds with what the world believes about morality, you're not following God. You've just created an idol for yourself. If you find yourself in a religious system that simply is a mirror of the values of this world when it comes to sexual morality, when it comes to, to how to view the, the physical body and, and physical things, if, if, if you've created a religious system that is simply in step with the culture in which, in which you live, you're not practicing God-centered, biblical living. You've simply fashioned an idol and you're worshiping it. Throughout Scripture, we encounter, from, from the very beginning after the fall, we encounter God telling his people, look, you have to live differently than those who are around you. As, as people desire to worship themselves and indulge themselves in, in, in excesses that are according to the flesh, look, you, you can't live that way. Cain, you, you can't worship just however you desire to worship. The people of Israel, as you, you go into the land of Canaan and people are engaged in sacrificing their children, uh, you, you, you can't do that. Uh, as they're engaged in, in cultic practices and engaged in, in all sorts of immorality, you can't do that. Paul tells the people in Corinth, look, as, as uh, everyone else around you is engaged in this, this gross immoral conduct, you, you can't do that idolatry the same is true as john writes these words to the people in asia minor look these false teachers are teaching you hey whatever goes whatever your desires of the body are go for it man that's not indicative of a person who's in relationship with god those are the desires of the flesh religious system that mirrors the values of the culture is just peddling idolatry right so that's that's the desires of the flesh loving the world means you're unwilling to resist your physical desires i mean i love i don't love god i love these physical things and so i'm, I'm going to pursue these instead of god here's the second thing loving the world means let's, let's look at this this morning secondly loving the world means that you covet what your eyes see Loving the world means that you covet and you desire what your eyes look upon. Yesterday afternoon, I was kind of walking by at Hannah. She was doing her homework, and I saw that her brother was very disturbed by what she was doing on the computer. And so I, I looked at what she was doing, and I suddenly became very disturbed. Apparently, one of Hannah's assignments was to watch a video of someone dissecting a cow's eye which is way worse than it sounds, okay? It's not a very uh, pleasant thing to dissect a cow's eye, apparently. I think Hannah's doing that on Monday, so that should be fun. But um, what I want to do is kind of a spiritual dissection, and, and maybe it'll be even less fun. But, but let's talk a little bit about a theology of the eye. Have you ever thought about your eye in a theological sense? The eye refers in Scripture not just to these two physical things that, that we have in our head that for some of us, they work really well. Some of us, they don't. The eye in Scripture refers to that, but it also sometimes refers to our spiritual eyesight. And sometimes, whenever Scripture speaks of our eyes, it refers to 
our ability to comprehend the world around us through all of our senses, not just through seeing, but our ability to comprehend and know the world through our sense of touch, through smell, through hearing, through touching, through just being in the, the presence of the, the world and, and taking in all these things about the world through our senses, that is what Scripture also sometimes means as it describes our eyesight. So let's, let's do a little bit of theology of the eyes, a little eye dissection in a theological sense. The first thing that we know about our eyes is that God gave them to us, right? Who gave you your eyes? God did. Psalm 20, verse 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Not only is it a gift from God to, to be able to see and process the world around you, but it's a good gift. The gift of being able to see and, and hear and and sense, that's, that's a good gift. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7 says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Our ability to see and to look around us, some of us have that ability, some of us have that ability not so much, but the ability to, to see or observe the world around us in other ways, that, that, that's a gift of God. So here's a question. Um, why? Why did God give us the ability to see? What's the purpose of these two things in our head that can look around and, and, and see each other and, and see the world around us? Well, God tells us what the purpose is. The purpose of our eyes is the same purpose of everything else that God created. And what's that? To glorify him, to bring glory to him. Listen to what scripture says. God has designed this gift of eyesight for worship, to behold the things of the Lord. Psalm 8, verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Isaiah 40, verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Psalm 119, verse 6, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Psalm 119, verse 15, I will meditate upon your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. And then 123, verse 1 of the psalm says to you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heaven. So, so here's the picture. You and I have been given eyesight so that we can look horizontally, we can look at the world around us, and as we look at the world around us and behold it and see it and grasp it, the inevitable result in the heart of a person who loves God as we use our eyes and look around us, the inevitable result as we look horizontally and we look around us should be for our gaze to turn upward. I look around me and my eyes are instruments that God has given me to fuel Worship of him. Romans chapter 1. Paul says, 
for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so we're without excuse. I am to look at the world around me, and, and this, is, this, is, this is cool, this is really important too, and I'm not just to think vaguely, oh, there's probably some deity that is behind this. There's probably some, some clockmaker in the sky that is behind some of these things. That's not what's supposed to happen. I'm to look at the created things and understand the attributes of an invisible God. Is that pretty awesome? I have been given eyes so so that I can worship God, so that I can look around me and see visible things and understand things about the one who is invisible, his divine attributes. That's awesome. What's the problem? What's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? is that we have turned these instruments, not just our eyes, all the ability we have to comprehend the world around us, we've turned these instruments from instruments that are to fuel worship, we've turned them into instruments that produce idols. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1. He's, he's talked about how, why we've been given eyes and how we can perceive who God is. It says we, we didn't do that. Verse, just a few verses later, he says, We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here we are. We've been given these eyes. We can look at visible things and we say, Ah, I see these visible things, and it causes me to, to look upward and, and worship the invisible God. You know, here, in this truth, I believe, is, is, the, is one of the keys to understanding why the world, that, that system set in opposition to God, sometimes gets so frustrated with Christians. You know, Christians are sometimes being accused, are sometimes accused of being very anti-science. I don't think that's a fair accusation, but I understand why people would think that we're anti-science. What does a Christian do? A Christian, a Christian looks around him or her and sees all these incredible things, you know, tiny things and, and, and big galaxies and, and, and finds out about quantum physics and and just things that blow their mind. And what does the Christian do? The Christian uses their eyes and all the things that allow them to sense the world around them. The Christian uses their eyes, and the Christian can't help it. The Christian does this. They look around them, and they, whoa, and they look up. And the the world, this system set in opposition to God, says, stop that. Look down. Cut it out. I can't help it. My eyes see the things of God. I just look up. reading an article this, this past week about a politician who had said something about when life begun, begins, and um, the uh, article appeared, I think it was in the Washington Post, someone wrote an editorial, and they were just, they were just really 
angry and say, look, science doesn't deal with philosophical questions like when life begins. Wait, what? <laughs> That's a philosophical question? For the worldly system that, that set itself up in opposition to God, it has to be. Look, we're not gonna we're gonna keep our eyes down. I'm not gonna think about any of those things. I'm gonna keep my eyes down. And Christian says, I can't. <laughs> I, I gotta look up. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. We've turned our eyes from instruments designed to look at the things around us and, and to look up, we turn those things in, into uh, things that help us produce idols. So when John says here, the desires of the eyes, what is he talking about? He's talking about people that are, that are using their eyes, and instead of looking at things and worshiping the Creator, they're worshiping the things themselves and coveting those, and instead of desiring God, desiring those things. Listen to, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 101, verse 3. This should be a verse that many of us memorize and, and meditate upon because a lot of us have a problem with our eyes, right? Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 101, verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I will not set in front of my eyes and gaze upon and and desire anything that's worthless. And what John is talking about here is is our tendency to to look and touch and feel and taste and smell and say, that's what I want. The things that I'm beholding, instead of wanting God, those are the things that I want. And I I would suggest to you that it manifests itself in our hearts in different ways. And I don't know how it manifests itself in your heart. Maybe for you, it's, it's walking into a store and, and seeing, or a mall, and seeing all the, the vastness of, of things that you can own and obtain and seeing an outfit and say, oh, I, 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 my, I, my eyes see that, I look upon it, I gaze upon it, I want that. Or you, you're okay with those things, but but then you, you're, you're getting ready to check out of the line and you haven't coveted anything, but then, then you see that, that picture on a magazine. You see that, that, that model and, and there's a, this, this coveting, I, I, want, I want that, or, or maybe I, I want myself to look like that. I wish my hair was like that person's hair. I wish my arms were shaped that person's way. I wish my rear end was that size or something. Whatever it is, it's, it's just stupid stuff. But I want it. I desire it. I covet it. Maybe it's staring at a computer screen, at pornographic images, and taking the, the beauty that, that God has created and, and, and saying, I, I don't want the God, I, I want the creation. I covet, I, I want, I desire. I want the clothes, I want the, the look. I want, you know what, uh, some of you guys, you're really good looking. That's okay, you don't need to repent of that. But when in our heart it says, you know, that's what I desire, the, the, the looking good in and of itself is this desire of my heart or, or, or coveting what someone else has or walking through a neighbor's, I wish I had that house, or I wish I had that 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 car or, or this bank account or that prestige, it's, it's what the, the senses have observed and desire and covet is whenever we've taken our eyes from, be, from things that are designed to look around us and then 
look upward, we've looked downward and saying, that's what I want. It's idolatry, it's foolishness, it's sin. Job understood this. In Job 31.1, as he thinks about what's worthless, he says, look, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I I gaze or, or lust upon a young woman? Some of us need to dissect our eyes and say, God, God, help me. I don't want to use my eyes to, to worship worthless things. I, I want to use my eyes to worship you. I can't love these things and love you at the same time. Maybe some of you have been lying to yourself and saying I, you, you, you can. Here's the third thing. I want us to see in verse 16. Thirdly, loving the world means that you take pride in your things. Different versions of the of the English Bible translate this this differently. This this word here in the end of kind of toward the end of verse 16, pride. And and what it means is is pride in life. Pride in and that word life most of the times in the New Testament refers to possessions, to, to things. And it can be physical things. It can also be Things that the world says have value, like prestige and fame and things like that, or can refer to, to, to physical things. And, and I'll be honest with you, um, this, is, this is one that I, I struggle with, not just in the sense of being obedient to this and, and desiring to be obedient, but even understanding where exactly I've gone wrong. What does it mean to take pride in my things? What does it mean to take pride in my things? Let me give you a couple thoughts that, that may help you apply this. Uh, turn over to the book of 1 Timothy. It's, it's before 1 John. It's in the T section of the Bible, the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And listen to what Paul says. Paul says, beginning in verse 6, Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But, and and here's the list of things you need to have in life. But, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Whenever I was uh, on on staff at another church, uh, one time someone came to me and and said, uh, hey, good news you're getting a, a raise. And they told me in the mouth, oh, I have arrived. I'm no longer the loser that's making that old salary. Now I've arrived and I'm making this salary. I have worth, I have value to this church. And thankful they recognized it, right? Ten minutes later, a co-worker comes in. Hey, did you hear about the raises? Yeah. I got X amount. And X was more than me. How dare the church not value me as I value me? What is that? Here's here's one aspect of this characteristic. It means that I value things in comparison with other people. 
it's not just the things themselves. What, what, what I take value in is when I have more than someone else and my, my worth is based upon being more well-off than that person. That's, that's pride. I have more than you, therefore I'm, I'm happy, I'm content, I love that. Another aspect of, of this, I think, as I think through how it applies to my own life, is when I boast about what I see with my eyes that I have. I see that I've, I've earned, I look at my bank account, I think, I've done that, and I, I look at the things that I've accumulated for myself, and I say, that's me. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? What do you have that you did not receive? It's a fool who fails to understand that, looks around them and says, I love those things. Another aspect of this, I think, is when we believe that we're self-sufficient, which is related to that, of course. We believe that we're self-sufficient. What is, what is the prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30, verse 9? He says, look, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. And he says, don't give me riches because I might say I'm full and I, I forget about you. I'm satisfied. I don't know what this looks like for you. I don't know exactly what it looks like for you to to be self-sufficient and to, to say I, I've arrived and I have all that I, that I need and take pride in it. But I would suggest to you that as you see yourself comparing yourself with others, basing your worth upon what you have, and failing to understand God's grace in your life, that you have anything at all, you fall into this trap of taking pride in your things. Listen to what else uh, Paul goes on to tell Timothy there in, in 1 Timothy 6. And, and here are words of wisdom to every single person in here. Because I believe all of us, by global standards, are wealthy. He says in verse 17 then of 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is, what, truly life. Here's what I would suggest to you. Much of the financial counseling that Christians receives, that, that Christians receive, fails to understand this truth. I'm not against investments. I'm not a, against a saving for retirement. I, th- I think all those things are, are good. But but here's what I caution you against in your heart: to saying to saying this, I will begin to be a generous person after I have secured my place in life. I believe much of our financial counseling is, is based on this truth. I can, I can store up for myself treasures on earth, and I can, I can have this, all the treasures that this world provides, and I can build up my bank account, and I become secure, and then I can, I can give generously out of my abundance. And what is that? That's happening in both worlds. I can love the things of the world, and then later I can be a generous person as well. 
just don't fall into that, okay? Don't fall into that trap. The time for generosity and, 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 and that affluence and giving is not some future day. It's, it's today. It's today. Now, obviously, if, if you're having trouble getting food and clothing, those basic things with which you're to be content, let, let us know, let the church know so we can help you have those things and, 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 and get you to a place where you can be generous. But as long as you have the basics, it's the, the, the day for generosity is now. It's now. So let's bring this all together, okay? Let's look at verse 17 of, of 1 John 2, and let's, let's bring it all together. Here, here's, what, here's what John's going to tell us. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's kind of the, the contrast that he's created. You have love of God, right? Where does love of God come from? How do you get love of God? Where does that, where does that, where does that come from? Who, who does it come from? It comes from God. Love of the Father comes from the Father. And what is true of the person whom the Father has given the ability to love, what happens to that person? He or she abides forever. Now what about the person who loves the world? Where does that come from? John tells us love of the world comes from the world. And, and here's, here's the amazing thing he says in verse 17 here. The world is already, that's the, that's the tense of the verb he uses here, it's already in the process of fading away. It's not like, okay, I'm going to really enjoy the world now and, and someday it's going to go, it's already going away. It's not buying Enron stock when it's at its peak and then it crashes. It's saying, oh, look, the Enron stock is crashing. I think I'll buy some. I was reading a, well, I read an article and I watched a little bit of a documentary. And it was on a, it was on a man who had uh, invested in Beanie Babies. Remember Beanie Babies, for those of you who are younger, Beanie Babies were kind of big in the late 90s and 2000s, I think, early 2000s. Beanie Babies were this, this huge uh, craze, and, and this man had, had five children, and he decided that he would invest in Beanie Babies, and he bought a, like every Beanie Baby he could, uh, five of them, one for each children, and one for each child, and he would have his kids go and, and stand in line and, and, and get the Beanie Babies, and um, his belief was that these, these Beanie Babies were going to help fund his children's college education. He'd buy a Beanie Baby for $5. It was supposedly worth $65 or $300. The, the problem is this. Uh, he never sold a single one. And even as he, was, even as he began to invest in this, this Beanie Baby craze and, and the values of these Beanie Babies plummeted, he, he just kept on going. Today, he said he spent you know, some fifteen to, to 20,000 Beanie Babies. I spent $100,000 or more on this Beanie Baby collection. It's 
passing away. Now, this little eight-minute documentary, you can watch it on, on YouTube. The guy's name is Chris Robinson, Chris Robinson Beanie Babies. You can watch this little documentary. It kind of got to the end, and a little spoiler alert here, but it kind of gets to the end, and, and, it, and it's, it's kind of like they're laughing at themselves, but there's also some tragedy there, right? And the wife makes the comment, she goes, you know, um, we wish we hadn't done this, we wish he, he hadn't done this, but maybe they'll come back in 20 years. And maybe they, who knows, 20 years from now, that collection may be worth a million dollars. You know what, though? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. If that collection is worth $5 million in five years, you know what's going to happen to it? It's still going to burn. If it's worth $100 million in two years, it's still going to burn. Why? The world is passing away along with its stuff. What's going to last? The one who loves the Father. The one who does the will of the Father abides forever. It's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to to look at your possessions, but, but listen to what Scripture says about the stuff that we have. 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter says, Look, that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Look, we're at the end. The end of all the material possessions that we have is, is, is close by. James, in James chapter 1, says, Look, uh, here's what the, the rich person should boast in. The rich person should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. What should those of us who have been blessed with a lot of resources say? Hey, I am so, I, I'm so proud of the fact that all this stuff that I have is worthless and I have obtained the one who is going to abide with me forever. I'm, I'm boasting the fact that I'm a silly person, like some grass is going to fade away eventually, but I have laid hold of the treasure that cannot be burned, that the moth cannot destroy or rust corrupt. None of those things can happen to my treasure, Jesus Christ. The person who has that understanding loves the Father. The person who has that understanding of material possessions and the things of this world has a heart that is uniquely focused upon God. It's a heart that doesn't love God and the things of the world. It's a heart that loves God alone. I mentioned last week, 1 Kings chapter 18. In 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, Elijah stands before the people and he says, look guys, uh, you've been worshiping Baal and you've been worshiping God and you've been kind of limping back and forth between two different opinions that day is over. Now you have to decide. Choose who are you going to serve. That day is coming for you as well. Ultimately, when it's all said and done, the love of God and the love for the world can't coexist. things of this world are passing away, the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. Through faith in him, we can have a relationship with you and abide forever. We pray, Father, 
you would be gracious to us. Allow us to continue to, to have our trust in Him. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.